Hey everyone, and welcome to the Homicide Homegirls podcast, a weekly true crime podcast examining the true crime cases that fascinate and intrigue us. I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda. Thanks for joining us. We can't wait to share the details of this wild episode with you. Hi listeners, welcome back. Hey guys. Um, Before we get started, full disclosure, we're doing another Louisiana case. Sorry, not sorry. Um, I promise we'll move out of Louisiana and the Gulf South eventually. But today we're going to discuss the 1997 triple murder, which took place at KK's Corner, a convenience store located in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, you're nodding your head and they can't hear you. <laughs> so Lake Charles is about four hours from here? Yeah, I think so. North. So four, no, North, west. Right? West. It's called, it's like East Texas. <laughs> it's East Texas. East Texas. So yeah, it's Why did four I think hours. it was north? Is Alexandria north? Yes. Oh, that's so, what I was thinking. Lake Charles is, I think it's Calcasieu, right? Yes, it is. So that's four hours west from Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. Well, probably, probably three from Baton Rouge. So. Yeah, probably so. Anyways, so we're just going to jump right in, I guess, because didn't find very much background information on the victims this week uh-huh. and there's three of them there's three it goes a triple murder oh, so wow. um we're just gonna kind of guess jump, buckle on up right jump right in so in the early morning hours of july 6th 1997 marty labeouf 21 years old stacy reeves 25 years old and nicole gidry 16 years old were killed during an apparent armed robbery of KK's Corner, which is a convenience store and gas station, which is located off of Highway 14 in Lake Charles. Wow, 16. Mm -hmm. They're all very young, but... Right. Wow. And um, apparently this store is still open today under a different name. Okay. But, I mean... Yeah, you can't wash that off. Yeah, everybody who lives there, I guess, kind of knows what happened there, so it's just... Yeah. I knew that you, like, the title of this episode was KK's Corner, but mm-hmm. I had no idea what, K- what KK's, KK's Corner, Corner was, was, so. Right. So, the bodies of the victims were found inside the store's cooler. What? Yes. Each had been shot more than once, and the killers had also taken precautions um, not to leave any physical evidence at the scene. And sketch, yeah, including cutting telephone lines and removing um, a surveillance videotape from inside a locked office. So, so not the camera, the actual they took recorded the actual, footage, right? Oh wow! Yeah, because you know back in '97 it was VHS, yeah, tapes. So they took the whole tape. So what the heck, right? And. Over the years, um, detectives have identified two cars that they think were involved. One is a black car similar to a late 80s model Chevy, well, Chevrolet Chevy Spectrum. And I looked it up, and I'll have to find a, post a picture of a, like an example of one, because it, it's kind of weird looking. I, I don't know if you know what a prism is. Like a little compact? Yeah, it's like a little tiny hatchback. So a Chevy Spectrum. Uh-huh. I've never heard of that. I hadn't either. Is it like a hatchback? Kind of, yeah. Okay. Like a Pinto? <laughs> kind of, yeah. Oh, no. I just looked it up. It's terrible. Yeah. Very I could distinctive, I feel fit like. Fit that in my pocket. 
Right, very distinctive. Um, and then the other one is a full-size red pickup truck. So those were just like cars that they vehicles that they think like were, were in the were area involved. at the time because they're they think very very different descriptions of right. vehicles. Right, and look, here's a tip. Red vehicles, especially red truck, is very noticeable. So if you're going to commit a crime, maybe don't do it in a red vehicle. Right. Just saying. Stick it out like a sore thumb. So back to the the cooler and the covering up everything. Like, obviously, it was an armed robbery. But I guess they had time to to plan out what, like, to to clean up or cover up. I mean, they put the victims in the cooler. And they had all this extra time to... And, and we'll, we'll kind of go through that. And you keep saying they. Am right? I saying they? Yeah, you said they. Oh. Which you would assume it would have to be Cause more there's three than one people. person. To, there's three victims. To overpower three victims. Right. Which, I guess if, if you come in with a gun, I mean... I guess I'm saying they in place of he or she. Cause I don't... True. But you, you would assume that it's more than one person. So, but we'll, we'll... so you're not going to reveal? Not yet. Okay. I'll get there. So, um, like you already said, it is Calcasieu Parish. So, Calcasieu Parish Deputy Sheriff, um, or Sheriff's Deputy, Donald Lucky Deluge was... <laughs> I totally read that as Ducky. <laughs> ...was the director of the Violent Crimes Task Force, or the VCTF. That's a tongue twister. Yeah. Um, which Might was... Might as well say the whole thing. Right. Uh, which was an elite homicide investigation unit that was made up of law enforcement officers from the um, Calcasieu Parish Sheriff's Office, the Louisiana State Police, and other area police departments. Mm-hmm. And Deputy Deluge was the lead investigator for this triple murder at KK's Corners, or KK's Corner. Um, and just a quick sidebar, um, the VCTF was disbanded in July of 2000 um, following the election of a new sheriff in that in that okay. parish. So, so when I, the agency that I work for, we had task force officers. So like, you know, you may be a detective for that sheriff's office, but you also worked for, um, the DEA mm-hmm. or, but like, or some like, like you were employed with them, but you, yeah, like you didn't show up to work there every day. You went and worked with the DEA or the, um, attorney general or, okay. or the, um, the feds. So interesting. And there's a reason that I kind of set this up. About the disbandment? No, there's a reason I set it up about um, Sheriff Deputy Deluge. He's very important in this. Good or bad? That's debatable. (sighs) I know, you hate when I do that. There you go again. So, shortly after the crime, um, VCTF investigators got their first lead when they found out that a woman named Virginia Johnson had purchased gas just before midnight, the night of the murders. Okay. So they interviewed her, and they um, determined that um, two men that she had seen entering the convenience store were most likely involved in the killings. So she helped police um, come up with or produce composite sketch of uh-huh. the uh, of the first man that she saw walk into KK's corner. But she couldn't give a detailed enough description of the second man for them to produce a, you know, a mm-hmm. good composite sketch. I always tell people that. Like, pay attention to people. Look them in their face. Mm-hmm. Like, right. you never know. Like, right. that's like if I'm sketched out by somebody in public, mm-hmm. people, like, just tend to, like, 
look the other way and kind of just not paint. Mm-hmm. But me, I'm like looking them dead in their face. And like, I think oh, you, you got. Said, I think you said that. In yeah, like before. oh, you got blue eyes. Oh, you got you mm-hmm. know detached ear. Look, like I pay attention to that stuff because if it comes down to it, I'm gonna like. Not to mention, I'm I'm pretty observant to begin with, and I pay attention to details. Mm-hmm. But it it will help you in the long run. Right, and composite sketch artists blow my mind how they can take details that you give them. Yes, and I've watched a couple of forensic files episodes on how they do it, and uh-huh. it's just crazy to me. But anyway, um, so like I said, she couldn't give much of a description of the second man, um, but she did remember that he had a a Marlboro keychain hanging from his front pocket. What? See, that's okay. good. Right. Well, then she was later placed, um, Virginia Johnson was later placed under hypnosis, and she recalled a rabbit's head keychain in the second man's front pocket. Wait, hypnosis is a real thing? Mm-hmm. No. Well, yeah, sometimes, you know, if you experience trauma as a coping mechanism, your body or your brain will block off certain memories. What? Mm-hmm. And they can be brought out with hypnosis. Not everybody believes in it. Right. I mean... I mean, I, I guess I don't know enough about it to believe in it, mm-hmm. but that's pretty wicked. Right. So, let's see. She remembered that a rabbit's head keychain in the second man's front pocket, but she still only gave, like, a very superficial description, not enough for a whole sketch. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, about a week after this session, um, she was able to produce a second composite drawing of the first man. So, I guess... The hypnosis session helped her remember more. Like it, yeah. Like as 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 time the like she was able on. to recollect like right more details. Yeah. So on January twenty fourth, nineteen ninety eight, the TV show America's Most Wanted uh, aired a segment on uh, called the killings at KK KK's Corner, uh, which talked about the events of the crime, including the detail that one of the perpetrators wore a rabbit's foot keychain in the front pocket. Oh, and before I said rabbit's head, you I meant rabbit's foot. Oh, okay. I was I like, uh, well, I remember those keychains. <laughs> Sorry, I meant rabbit's foot. I'm like, that's a pretty big keychain. I don't know why I typed head. Wait, but did you rabbit's foot. did you watch this episode? No, I couldn't find it. Oh, probably. I tried. Um, so that night or that evening, um, a Lake Charles resident named Lonnie Kemp, who's who saw the you know he saw the, the special. Um, he called, contacted the VCTF and um, told police that she knew a man, a white male from Lake Charles, who had known Stacy Reeves, <gasps> one of the victims, yeah. and also had a rabbit's, wore a rabbit's foot in his front pocket. Shut up. Mm-hmm. Wait, before we get into this, the three victims, did they work there? Yes. Okay. I believe, yeah, they worked there. They weren't just like... No, they worked there. Okay, customers. Yeah. Yeah, as far as I know, they worked there. I haven't seen anything saying that they didn't. Okay. I'm pretty sure they did. Hopefully nobody writes us in and it's like, you're an idiot. They did not work there. But I'm pretty sure they did. Um, so Lonnie Kemp further told police that she thought the man lived in New Orleans. So based on that tip, FBI agent, I guess the FBI had gotten involved at that point. They eventually tracked down Thomas Frank Cisco in Metairie. And interviewed him on May 12th and 13th in 1998. So this is about six months later? hmm After the... After, after the, the killing. Yeah. Well, no. From the killing. The murders. No, almost a year. It was July of 97. Yeah, January of 98. No, this is in May of 98. Okay. January of 98 is... Was the composite. The, no, January of 98 was the episode. Okay. I think... Yeah. 
January 98 was the America's Most Wanted episode, and that's when they got the tip, but then I guess it took them a couple months to find this person. During the first interview on May 12, 1998, um, Cisco mentioned that he was a friend of Stacey Reeves, so just came out and admitted it, and claimed that he hadn't heard from her since he moved from Lake Charles in 1989. Liar! Good lord. Liar. Probably so. Um, He also admitted that at the time... Wait, let me just... What are the chances that you live in Metairie and your name gets brought into a murder investigation three hours away? Mm-hmm. I see right through your lies, boy. Right. Um, yeah. So he admitted that at the time that the murders took place, he had been a very heavy drug user. And while he was on drugs, he had violent tendencies. But it's possible... And he said that it's possible he participated in the murders, but has no memory because of the drug use. <laughs> that's not a. That's, Are that's, you stupid? That's not a. That's not a defense. That's like, not that's, a get out of jail free card. Like, no. Oh, I was high, so I don't remember. But I might have killed somebody. Like cool. I just don't remember. Like he right. went from not talking to her since 1989, <laughs> which was what eight, eight years, years to I might have did it, but I don't remember. Right. All right. He's shady McShaderson. So, on the second day of the interviews, he claimed that he was in Metairie for the entire 4th of July weekend of, you know, in 1997, and he denied any participation in the murders. Um, So, three months later, in August of 98, um, FBI agents re-interviewed Cisco and, you know, basically told him, your claim of being in Metairie over the 4th of July weekend can't be corroborated. No receipts found. No. Zero. <laughs> Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Yes. Fraud. <laughs> um, according to a neighbor in his former apartment complex, which I believe was in Metairie, kind of, it was gray murky, but I'm pretty sure it was in Metairie because that's murky. where it was living. Yeah. Um, the neighbor told Cisco that he couldn't join her and some friends when they left the barbecue at the complex around 7 p.m. on July 4th, 1997, which was on a Friday. And then the neighbor said that she didn't see him again until the following Monday or Tuesday. So the 4th was a Friday. When did the murders happen? Was it the 6th? The 6th. So Sunday. That was a Friday. So the murders happened on a Sunday. And the neighbor didn't see him until the Monday or Tuesday. So it's so he, he resided in Metairie mm-hmm. at the time. What? Who takes a three-hour trip to kill somebody? You dedicated. Right. So then Cisco was interviewed that same day in August that we were talking about by the FBI for five and a half hours, during which time he gave four different statements about the triple murder. Okay. Yeah, including, like, his statements or his, I don't want to say confessions, but, you know, his statements ranged from no involvement pointing the finger at, an, at somebody else named Robert Thig, Thigpen. Uh-huh. Is naming him as the shooter. Wait, oh, if you didn't... If you weren't there, how you know he was the shooter? Right, that's what I'm saying. He kept changing. Boy. Uh, eventually, though, Cisco gave police a written statement which implicated both himself and Thigpen in the murders. Um, he also admitted to police 
slash the FBI, um, that he had seen the America's Most Wanted episode pertaining to the unsolved murders. And he got rid of his rabbit keychain. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> uh, during the interview, it was reported that Cisco was emotional at times and gave conflicting and even sometimes even false details about his participation um, you know, in the crime. But after giving his written statement, he agreed to be transported by the FBI um, to Deputy Deloche and the task force in Lake Charles where he would be subsequently arrested. So, like, he agreed to that. He's like, yeah, no, I'm going to be arrested, but, you know, let's go. Let's ride. (laughs) I can't handle you. So, on August 26th, 1998, around 11 p.m., uh, Deputy Deloche, Lucky, the one that we talk, we've been that I mentioned in the very beginning, and members of the task force, they met with Cisco as you know an FBI transporter because they had never talked to him at that point. Hmm. They could, well, they not that no, the FBI had been the ones talking to him and met her. Yeah, so Kakashu right. officers never talked to him. Kakashu's sheriff's office yeah. deputies, yeah. So apparently, Cisco and Deputy Deloche knew each other previously. I guess Cisco is like from Lake Charles, and maybe it's one of those small towns where everybody knows everybody. Is this where it gets catchy? It's yeah, I guess. Because earlier you said he was an important role, um, oh, the it, deputy. We're getting there. Mm, yeah. You're about to put your thing down, flip it, and reverse it. <laughs> I hate you so much. Anyway. So, yeah, they, like, knew each other. So, at first, they were, like, catching up on what they'd been doing since they had last CDs. You're like, oh, hey, what, how, how you mom and them? Like, uh, no, absolutely not. Keep it professional. <laughs> or maybe he was setting the tone and, like, thinking. Like, getting him to trust them. Yeah, maybe. like, maybe. building that. So, then Cisco began to tell Deputy Deloche about uh, places that he had allegedly visited the weekend of the murders. Allegedly. Yeah. Including a bus station, uh, which he had arrived in Lake Charles from New Orleans, but the particular bus station that he said, said he, he was at was not in operation in July of 97. But he was on drugs, remember? <laughs> I can't be held responsible. So, yeah. He also attempted to locate the home of Robert Thigpen, the guy that he you know, oh, said was in, involved. The one he ratted on? Yeah, the one that he said was a shooter. Uh, which is where he said that that's where they planned the whole robbery. However, he was never able to identify Thigpen's home, even when Deputy Deloche took him to that exact street. So it's like, if you, if you really plan this robbery at this guy's house, wouldn't you be able to find this guy's house? But I guess maybe if you'd only been there one time and to if you plan were, yeah. something, and if he was on, on drugs, if he's so cracked out. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Yes. I don't know what kind of drugs he's on, but <laughs> speculation. Um, so, but despite these inconsistencies and errors, Deputy Deloche was still able to obtain another confession from Cisco, which still alleged that Thigpen was the shooter. So, after this interview, um, Cisco was arrested for armed robbery and taken to the De Quincey Jail. I have so many questions. I'll probably answer them shortly. Okay, yeah, because you know how I do. So, the next day, Deputy Deloosh and his team located Robert Thigpen, whose, this is where it's nuts, whose wife and sister had taken Nicole Gidry 
to KK's corner the evening of the murders and left her there with Stacy Reeves. So she was the one of the third victim. So she was the 16 year old. Yes. So, so Robert's the, wife took the 16 year old to the convenience store mm-hmm. to be or to stay with or whatever to hang out with. Yeah, Stacey. or to go to work. I don't know. Yeah, so these people are all somehow connected. Like, that's sketchy. Girl. So, Thigpen provided an alibi that was firm, according to Deputy Deloosh. Don't know what the alibi was. But, so, after meeting with Thigpen, Deputy Deloosh interviewed Cisco again, accusing Cisco of minimizing his involvement in the murders. Like, downplaying it? Mm-hmm. Like, covering, and then covering for other people, or making the entire thing up. Which we never understand. <laughs> right. So... At that point, um, then Cisco requested to speak to Deputy Deloosh alone uh-uh. to tell him the truth. Uh-uh. Yeah. But upon being alone, he denied any involvement in the murders, which prompted Deputy Deloosh to tell Cisco that he wasn't, quote, man enough, end quote, and didn't have the, quote, guts, end quote, to admit his involvement. So, following this... That's not going to get you a confession, dude. Right, like, emasculating him. Yeah. But I have watched some tapes of, like, police interviews, and they say some really messed up stuff to these people. Yeah, but I think because he knew him? I don't know. Probably, yeah. So, following this, Cisco claimed that he committed the armed robbery and murders alone. Which, like we said, in the very, very beginning, before you even knew any of this, and I asked you, don't you think that you know, somebody that had been multiple. multiple. Yeah, multiple people. Because how are you going to overpower three people? I mean, I guess it's possible, but it seems very unlikely to me. Right. But anyway. I guess if you're uh, bound and determined. Right. Um, and then following this, Cisco indicated that he might need an, need an attorney. And even though he requested an attorney, Deputy Deloosh continued to speak to him and eventually arrest warrants were executed and Cisco was transported to the Calcasieu Parish Jail where he was reportedly placed in isolation. And I actually read that he was kept in isolation for most of 1998 and 1999. Well, I guess from August of 98 and most of 1999, which there have been tons of studies on what keeping people in isolation for like extended periods of time will do to your psyche. Yeah. Like, it will make you make you crazy. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'd probably enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe for just a little while. So, on August 30th, 1998, Cisco asked to speak to Deputy Deloosh. However, Deputy Deloosh didn't go to the jail to speak with Cisco until the following day, on the 31st. Um, Deputy Deloosh met with Cisco in his cell, where he agreed to help him obtain medication for mental health related issues and possibly even helping to have him to like return him to general population so he's not in isolation Uh um well i mean why and i guess it all goes back to why he was put in isolation if he made comments about you know know. during this conversation though cisco again admitted involvement in the robbery and murders like this is like round and round confession yeah Deloosh then asked Cisco about the gun and the missing videotape and whether he would accompany him to the New Orleans area to show where the items were disposed of. However, later that day, Cisco again requested to speak with Deputy Deloosh 
but the deputy sent other members of his task force who Cisco then recanted his confession to. I mean, I get it, though. Like, these detectives are busy people. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't just, yeah. you know, snap your fingers and expect me to be there to listen to you. Like, you've been giving them the runaround. Right. Like, especially, they have other cases to, to work on. Especially, like, he was, like, the head of that task force, I'm pretty sure. Right. So, yeah, he, this is not the only case that they had, you know. So, once again... They consulted, you know, they talked to the DA, and the Deputy Delush was instructed to obtain another statement. So he this did. This is getting old. I know. So like he went back and got and then and got another videotaped confession. Couldn't find that online. I looked. <laughs> now, so I'm about to talk about Cisco's lawyer because he finally they finally did give him one. But before I do, I want to say I know I don't usually get this specific, but. You already know there's a reason I do everything that I do in these episodes. So just hang in there because it'll all make sense eventually. You're throwing shade at me. What? You're throwing shade at me. Maybe a little bit. I know I'm You're like, you. sit down and shut up and listen to what I have to say. Don't ask any questions. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I tell my five-year-old. Yeah, I'm right. <laughs> Anyways, so on September 1st of 1998, um, Cisco received a court-appointed lawyer uh, Lake Charles attorney Evelyn M. Oob. Um, however, Oob stated she was on vacation then and didn't return to the office until a week later. But when she was informed of the appointment that day, um, she left a message with the DA requesting that the lineup, which had been requested by Deputy Deluge, be postponed until she could be present to represent her client. So I guess as a lawyer, especially a public defender, even when you're on vacation, if you get appointed to a case, they have to let you know. Um, you know, they have to let you know and you have to, like, call in. So, apparently... Wait, but Deputy Deluge wanted to set up, a like, a lineup of without men. Without there. Huh? Without the attorney there. Right. Wait, For so, Virginia Johnson to try to pick someone out of a lineup. Wait, the so, girl. Right, Virginia. But why... Like, so, they appointed him a lawyer that was out of town? Right, how dumb. That doesn't seem fair. Yeah. And I'm usually n- right. pro. And she requested that they postpone this lineup until she could be there to represent her client. However, Deputy Deluge had already obtained the defendant's permission to proceed without his lawyer's presence with the lineup. Was he still cracked out at this point? Because that doesn't seem like a very wise decision. I don't know. Deputy Deluge testified at trial that he conducted a physical lineup on September 1st, 1998, where Virginia Johnson unexpectedly identified the defendant as the man who had bumped into her at the convenience store. Oh, he physically so bumped good. into her? or I guess so, yeah. Wow. Deputy Deluge testified in the trial that Virginia Johnson was surprised that she could identify the defendant, but that she was certain that it was him. So that's... That makes sense to me, yeah. though. I mean, given, you know... Like, right. the shock factor, I think. Right. Like, holy like hell, that's, that's, that's the killer. Right. And Virginia Johnson also testified at trial about how she identified him in the lineup. Like, I guess how she knew it was him. Yeah. Um, so, on counsel's advice, Cisco had no contact with Deputy Deluge for the next couple of months. So, that was at the... That was September 1st. That's probably um, a good thing. As much as he yeah. was calling on him, right. phoning a friend and stuff. Phoning a friend. Yeah, so that was September 1st of 98. Um, so, 
on January 20th of 1999, Cisco sent a message to Deputy Deluge stating that he wanted to speak with him. How he could send a message from Jim? I don't know. Carrier pigeon. So, (laughs) carrier pigeon. Yeah, just tied it to his little leg. Yeah, I hate me so much. Go find Deputy Deluge for (laughs) me. So, Deputy Deluge first sent over other task force members to talk to Cisco, but he eventually did visit Cisco in his cell, where Cisco again complained of being in isolation and was saying that he really needed medication for being depressed. Okay. Which I think is reasonable. Reasonable. Right. So after Deputy Deluge promised to help him, Cisco, Cisco asked if they could tell his counsel about the, if they should tell his counsel about the meeting, but he decided to tell her later because Deputy Deluge said it was up to him whether he wanted to inform his lawyer or not, which you should always tell your lawyer when you're talking to cops. Like if you're talking, if you're to in the, that position, yeah. yeah. Like and, if you're talking, and you said, um, like per the counsel's advice, they shouldn't. Have, he shouldn't have been right. I've been in contact with him, right? Without, especially without your attorney knowing, right? So, Cisco then proceeded to make another statement slash confession, the eleventh, so far. Damn. Right. This time, Cisco said that three people were involved in the killings: himself and two others named Malcolm and Bobby. Wait. So not. Wait, Robert, Bobby? Maybe. I guess. Um, he also agreed that he would accompany Deluge to the New Orleans area where he allegedly tossed the gun from the Causeway Bridge into Lake Pontchartrain and destroyed the videotape in an area near the Bonacary Spillway. Bonacary Spillway. Wait, first of all, you're not recovering anything from Lake Pontchartrain? Or the Spillway. Or the Spillway. Right. Amanda grew up in Laplace, y'all. In Laplace. Laplace. No, it's really pronounced Laplace. That's one of those screaming lady and cat memes. They have one. It's like Laplace, and the cat's like Laplace. Yeah, they have one of those. But, yeah. yeah you're not getting anything out of the spillway or, like, Pontchartrain. You you might. It depends. I passed the spillway today. Me too. Anyway. I passed the spillway every day. <laughs> anyway, one week later, on January 27th, 1999... Deputy Deluge and other members of the task force picked up Cisco to take him to Laplace. So you just, they just. This is so crazy to me. Like, they just let you take prisoners on field trips? Like, what do you do? Like, sign him out? Like, you're signing yeah. your kid out of school? I guess. I don't like know. Chain I, of custody. <laughs> Does that apply to live humans? <laughs> live people? I don't know. I mean, I guess. If they're if you think they're taking you to recover evidence or a body or something, they do that. You know, I don't know. Well, not a body in this case, but evidence. I mean, it, it could have been very well. You know, like if that if it were that kind of case. Right. So when they the uh, delusion members of the task force asked Cisco about telling his attorney, he told them it wasn't necessary, and that she wouldn't go with them anyway. Wait, so that was his reasoning to not telling his attorney that? Right, that she wouldn't It didn't matter anyway. and she wasn't going to accompany them. Right. Okay, but you should still, still tell her. I mean, you're incriminating yourself, dude. Go right. do what you want. I mean, she's a free lawyer anyway, so I guess right. you're not losing any money. So, while at the Bonacary spillway, the defendant made additional confessions on tape, including that he was the shooter, but also indicating that there was a fourth person involved. Oh, Jesus Christ. So, the next day, January 28th, 1999, the defendant wrote 
another letter to Deputy Deluge, which was immediately delivered to him by Russell Fleek, the jail chaplain. On January 29, 1999, the defendant was taken to Deputy Deluge, who secured another statement from the defendant, this time saying that a fourth person, Chris Cabral, had actually been involved in the robbery and murders. So let's recap. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna need a uh, yeah. I need like a flow a checkpoint, chart, a flow chart, <laughs> like a like a Venn diagram. <laughs> yeah. So, Thomas Frank Cisco is the person that they have in custody. Originally, he said Robert Thigpen was the shooter, but Deputy Deluge talked to him and said that his alibi was firm. And then he said, so Roberts was firm. Yes. Okay. Robert Thigpen. So then he said that two other people. By he, I mean... Melvin? Marvin? What was his name? Marvin? Thomas Frank Cisco? No, no, no. Malcolm. Malcolm. I was close. Yeah, Thomas... <laughs> Melvin Marvin. Cisco. So Cisco said that two other people named Malcolm and Bobby were involved. So now, which I'm thinking Robert could be Bobby. Yeah. So, so Thomas, Malcolm, and Bobby. And now he's saying a Chris. fourth person, Chris, was involved. These After are like a lot of moving twenty seven upteen confessions. <laughs> right. Um so while in jail awaiting trial, Cisco made like several different confessions admitting involvement in the you know, in the triple murder at KK's Corner to different people. Like the jail chaplain, I wanna say he talked I didn't go into super detail because I figured I already had I was already talking a lot uh-huh. about what he already said to Deputy Zlouche, but mm-hmm. you know, he told the jail chaplain like I already mentioned he told I think one of the corrections officers he spoke to Debbie Deluge multiple times a million and one times right he wrote in letters and love notes and stuff (laughs) like he told the other members of the task force that came to talk to him like this dude is just all over the place extra but his confessions weren't always consistent right and they often change like depending on the day Psychotic, right? So like, oh, I'm, I did it alone. Oh no, it was Malcolm and Bobby. Oh, I, I didn't do it at all. <laughs> right. Oh, it was Robert Thigpen. Oh no, it was me, Malcolm, Bobby, and I was Chris. in Metairie. <laughs> right for that weekend. Right. Like just stop. Right. So, but his case did eventually go to trial um, on in Calcasieu Parish. I mean, was it pretty solid? I mean, I guess with Virginia Johnson's like testimony and yeah, identification of him. Yeah. Yeah, but we know eyewitness eyewitness testimony is not always. It's not an exact. It's not like DNA. Don't do that to me. What? You really about to go that go that route? Oh no, he was convicted. Okay. No, he was convicted. I felt my heart breaking. She was about to get up out of this room and walk <laughs> out. I'm done with this. <laughs> Throws <laughs> the wall. Throws papers <sighs> in the air. Because I know how you act with these episodes sometimes. I don't know what to expect anymore. So his case went to trial in Calcasieu Parish, but with a jury selected from an East Baton Rouge Parish jury pool. Why? Because it was such publicized? I guess because in that... That's you, weird. You, you want an unbiased jury. So, like, maybe in that, in that jurisdiction or that parish, a lot of people knew him. Or, or how, it was very but that's publicized. But that's not even neighboring, is it? No. Like, Charles is not far from EBR. I don't know what Cal- where Calcasieu and EBR, if they're neighboring. I don't know. 
No, because then you have Lafayette. Oh, true. You have West Baton Rouge. I don't know. Though, that just thought that was weird, too. But anyway. I guess like a sequestered jury. Maybe. I don't know. So testimony began on October 9th, 2000. Uh, the trial lasted nine days and ended with the jury returning a guilty verdict and the recommendation of death penalty by lethal injection. So the trial court then sentenced Cisco to death by lethal injection as recommended by the jury. So he was convicted. Cut throat. He was convicted. And um, we're about to talk about your least favorite word. No. Appeal. <laughs> I wasn't ready. Right. And, uh, yeah. So in December of 2003, Cisco appealed his conviction. So a little over sentence. three years. Right. Okay. He conv- he convicted. Oh, my goodness. He appealed his conviction and death sentence, alleging a conflict of interest. Come this again? Is, this is where Deputy Deluge comes in. Oh, he kept that in his back pocket. So apparently, Cisco's court-appointed counsel, Evelyn Oob, also represented Deputy Deluge and Deputy Deluge's wife in separate domestic matters or family law matters. <gasps> That's a clear conflict of interest. And they probably knew that the whole time. Mm-hmm. Wait. Oh, jeez. Oh, no, stop. Please hold your questions. <laughs> Please stay seated till the end of the ride. <laughs> Please keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times. So, Cisco's attorney defended, you know, herself remaining as his counsel, stating that he was made aware of her potentially conflicting relationship with both Deputy Deluge and his wife. And according to her, Cisco knew of this potential conflict and accepted accepted it and still agreed to keep her as his counsel. But that should have been a red flag for Deluge, too. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, for both parties. Right. And I don't think I have this typed in here in my script, but I did read that. I want to say he dropped out of high school in, like, the 11th grade, which is a lot more than some people could do. But there have been questions of, like, did he fully, did he have the capacity to fully understand why that's an issue? Who? Cisco. Oh, okay. Like, did he have the mental capacity to fully understand? Probably not, because he didn't feel the need to tell his attorney he's going to take a field trip. Right. For shiggles. <laughs> shiggles. Yeah. Um, actually, even this all, the, the conflict of interest was discussed um, in front of a judge on September 24th, 1998, before he was ever arraigned. So the trial judge asked whether Cisco had read and understood a letter which his lawyer had written him. Apparently, she wrote him a letter outlining the potential conflict, and he told the judge, "Yeah, I read it. I understand." I feel like he was just like a go with the flow, like yeah, like, yes, stamp of approval like, sure. on everything. He didn't really care. Like, like, like that meme of that dog sitting in the burning room, and he's like, "This is fine." Yeah, like yeah, sure, right. I'm gonna die in jail anyways. Let's go. Right. Then the judge briefly explained, you know, what a conflict of interest is and how his counsel's performance might be affected by that conflict of interest. Like the judge attempted to dumb it down. Yeah, like the judge was explaining to him. Even, like, kind of gave him an example of, like, why her why her judgment might be skewed yeah. or, or, or impaired because of this conflict. And then after explaining all of that, the judge again asked if Cisco understood and if he wished to keep Ube as, as his counsel, to which he replied, yes, I understand, and yes, I would like to keep her as my counsel. 
But despite all of those measures taken by, you know, his counsel and the judge, Cisco's conviction and death sentence were overturned as a result of his appeal, and he was granted a new trial you know because what? of that. You know what? As many hands that were in this pot, mm-hmm. the Deputy Deloosh, um, Oob, Cisco, and the judge, they were all on the same page. I feel like that right. appeal shouldn't have been overturned. Right. Or, I mean, or granted. granted. Like, right. it was broken down for you. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't think he's smart enough to, to keep that little you know, chess piece in his right. back pocket to play at a later date. Right. But eventually, Cisco agreed agreed to and was allowed to plead guilty to three counts of manslaughter. Oh, no. In order to avoid going to trial for second-degree murder. The charges were previously lowered from first-degree to second-degree murder in 2008. So... That is a drastic, like, downgrade. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, that was, you know, I, I talked about in a previous episode, it's hard to prove first degree. Mm-hmm. That was n- undoubtedly mm-hmm. first degree. Right. Armed robbery and murder. Right. Right. But according to the assistant attorney general in 2010, the families agreed to this plea deal because Cisco would spend 90 years in prison without the option of another of appeal, another yeah. appeal, and they would get some closure. So I guess, you know, we talked about that, um, like, with Ronald Dominique the serial killer and he was episode nine uh-huh. like the families agreed to a plea deal because when and i guess this is like across the board when you accept a plea deal you forfeit your right to an appeal every I time s- i think so yeah from what i, I read i guess that makes I sense so. i never thought about you're, it you're admitting you're basically admitting now there are certain things i think it's an alfred plea where uh-huh. you're signing a plea Basically, you're taking a plea because you know that it's a better deal for you, then, but you're not admitting any guilt. That's what an Alfred plea is. So, hmm. learn that from the staircase with Michael Peterson. But, I guess that makes sense. I never thought about, like, plea yeah, deal. Yeah, I mean, if you're... I mean, good. You're saying you did it. Right. Don't sit here and agree to something and then mm-hmm. go back and change your mind for an right. appeal. Yeah, and this part's kind of rough. So, as the judge... Uh, Robert Wyatt was preparing to hand down Cisco's sentence. Family members of the victims were allowed to address him, address Cisco, and give victim impact statements. Girl, uh, if are, I uh, ever had to do that, I oh would be goodness. so rowdy. Oh right, you get you get kicked out. Yeah, I'd be so in contempt. <laughs> so Marty LaBeouf's mother, and I'm probably gonna say this wrong, so I apologize. Janilla sobbed as she explained to Cisco how her grief caused her to become dysfunctional and mentally ill. That's so sad. Right. Um, According to a 2010 article by KPLCTV.com, she said she's always wanted to confront Cisco, saying, quote, I have no hatred toward him. In fact, I feel sorry for him. I have to forgive him in order for God to forgive me, and I do. I forgive him, end quote. I will never be one of those people. No, but how strong of her to yeah, be able exactly. to forgive him. I will never be one of those people. I can't. No. no. Grudge to the end. Right. So her sister, Marty's mom, sister, so Marty's aunt, Patsy Young, said that Marty's death has changed the whole family's lives forever, especially his mother, saying, quote, she has screamed till she's almost passed out to the point where I thought she was going to have a stroke. She's been in mental wards. She's under psychiatric care oh and has been ever since this happened. Oh, my God. I think this day probably helped her more than anything, and she actually got to talk to Cisco face-to-face and tell him how she felt, end quote. 
That's oh. so sad. I'll probably go on a killing spree. <laughs> right. Their families also expressed disgust that Cisco hasn't told investigators who else was involved in the murders. Right. Like, definitively. Like, all this right. just throwing but, around names. But then it makes you wonder, like, what was Robert Thigpen's actual alibi? If, yeah. Because all, well, all it was was Deputy Deluge saying it was firm. I'm doing air quotes. Firm. Like, I don't know. I, I haven't been able to... Or, or these other people, you know, what... Um, like, yeah, I feel like that should have been part of his plea. Right. His plea deal. Like, like you, 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 you going to tell me. Right. Exactly. Who I want name, date of birth, social security number, where they live. Address. <laughs> right. Um, but the DA and investigators are hopeful that, you know, one day justice will be brought to the others involved. Because, yeah, yeah, you have this guy in prison, but, but it's, it's still sort of unsolved. It's still sort of unresolved, you know? I do not believe... That he did it alone. I don't. There, I don't. There's think, no way. I don't think so either. No, I don't think so. Especially because um, Virginia like, Johnson picked him out of a lineup and said that he was one of two men she saw together too. Right, and if there was three victims, mm-hmm. one location, mm-hmm. and I mean I don't know if you probably didn't find this in your um, research, but like, did anybody like call the cops like? Like, was there, you know, if if there were three people and one of them got shot, you know, like, what are the chances that right. they, you know, they call 911, you know, like, I'm at not, least an open line. Right. You know, maybe not have enough time to say what's going on, but, I mean, I know in the Leesville case, they they got to the Circle K and, like, nobody was there. Right. That was just one victim. Right. True. You know? Yeah, I don't, I don't know, and I think... I want to say their. Uh, I want to say their boss maybe was trying to call the store and nobody was picking up, so that's how they knew something was wrong. And right. they went over there and checked. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and I think I only read it in like one place. So when I can only find something in one place, I'm kind of like, yeah, you know. So, but according to prosecutors, Cisco will not be eligible for for release from prison until he is 104 years old. Wow. He's currently 50. Wow. So, kind of part of our little, like, wrap-up, just I want to talk about, like, where we are now. Mm -hmm. So, detectives have said that they've spent hours, like, going through reports and have traveled to multiple states, like Tennessee, Oklahoma, California, in search of new information. And they've also worked to identify people who may have any information, including 17 people in the New Orleans area, because that's where he was living. Right. Cisco was living at the time. And according to a 2003 article on KPLCTV.com, Major David Wagner, then head of the Calcasieu Sheriff's Office cold case unit, said, quote, We spent three weeks in the housing projects of New Orleans identifying these people, interviewing them, and obtaining information that was not available to the task force when they began their initial investigation. One of the things with this type of investigation is that a person may have information they feel is insignificant. However, it could be extremely significant to us and have enormous weight as to the direction we go in, end quote. Which, that, and that's why we always say, please call if you have yeah. any information. If even you see if something, you think say it, something. Even if you think it's not significant, it could trigger it something. It could be that little missing mm-hmm. puzzle piece. Right. So, victim Marty LaBeouf's father, Ellis, was also interviewed in the same 2003 article, saying, quote, 
They still have not recovered all of the checks that were taken, and there are items that were taken from the victims that have never been that have not been recovered. If any of that could be discovered and linked to an individual or other individuals, then it's possible that they might be able to solve this thing. End quote. Yeah, but if they're claiming Lake Pontchartrain and Bonacare Spillway, yeah, they're never going to recover that stuff. Right. Right. So Cisco is currently serving out his 90-year sentence at Angola in Louisiana. Uh, so, do you think he interacts with Ronald Dominique? If you remember from that episode, he's yeah. in Angola too. I know. I wonder if there's like different like wings, like That's serial huge. killer wings, like. Um, uh, maybe like, well, that's like severity of your. Angola's like, you're gonna die there type of prison, right? I think so. Like, it's not like violent crime wing. True. Drug. Oh, true. Wing. I don't yeah. know. I think you have to be like the worst of the worst to go to Angola. Yeah. That's where Derek Todd Lee was. Yeah. So, although Cisco is serving jail time for his role in the murders, no one else has ever been arrested in connection with the murders, even though many people, including the victim's families and us, believe that Cisco did not act alone. I just think there's no way. How could he be so quiet for so long? How could he just take the rap? You know what I'm I saying? Know. Like, he hasn't, I mean, he slipped up, but not. I am wrecked. I ain't doing a dump and nobody. No. <laughs> no, but like, you know, he said here they're Malcolm, Bobby, and Chris, but like, I mean, it's been they, 10 years. He knows no, more than he's it's saying. Been, it's, it's been 20, 20 years. years. So, 22. But since he's convicted, like, how did he. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's always been 22 years since it happened, but yeah. Yeah, like, how. Yeah, I know. How can he just sit so quietly? I don't know. So, you go down to. Right. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going down for everybody. Mm-mm. So, even though this case is technically solved, I'm doing air quotes again, it's also sort of unsolved because it's likely that he didn't act alone. And according to a 2017 article on kplctv.com, I like that website apparently, mm-hmm. former Calcasieu Parish District Attorney Prosecutor Rick Bryant, who prosecuted the case, firmly believes that there are others involved. He told the website, quote, to control three people, to systematically shoot them in a freezer, to shut the store down, to cut the wires outside, to take the videotape of the scene requires more than one person. It had to be multiple persons, end quote. Thank you. Retweet, cosign. He said it better than I could have. Yeah. Um, I just hope that one day Cisco will finally, I don't know, grow a backbone and tell the truth. Like, tell them who was involved and so that the others that were involved in this horrible heinous murder will be brought to justice for the families of these victims i don't i don't think he because i I can't imagine knowing that that there were people out there like living their lives with zero consequences when they were conscience right when they were involved in the murder of your loved one like that's so horrible and i didn't mention this before but stacy reeves had twin two-year-old girls when she was murdered her her girls were two her wow. girls were too, yeah. So, yeah, I I mean, we say this in a lot of our uh, episodes, but, like, if that, if those individuals are, end up tied up mm-hmm. in the, in the, with the law again. They could like, leverage their knowledge. Yeah. Of, and I just hope that happens. I hope that happens. So. Every time. <laughs> apparently, police have cleared two of the three people that Cisco claims are involved. Malcolm and Bobby have both been cleared. I don't know how. So, maybe Bobby is Robert. And or maybe another Bobby. Yeah. But, however, Chris Cabral, who, according to police, 
resembles a composite sketch of a man wanted for questioning has not been cleared because his alibi didn't check out. So why is this dude walking around? Yeah. Like, why are like, you not? Like, dig right? deeper. So I, I'm not sure where they are with Chris. I couldn't, I don't know. So it's like TBD on that. But that makes more sense because she's, um, Virginia Johnson said she saw him with another guy. With one so other guy. two adds up, two right. people. Right. Um, and the fact that he resembles a composite sketch, you know? Yeah. I don't know. But like I said, I don't know. Have they questioned him? Like, clearly they did because they said his alibi didn't check out, so I don't know. Like, where, how, maybe they don't you, have Like, enough, move forward. Like, next maybe, step. Yeah, like, maybe they don't have enough to hold him. I don't know. But many of the victims' families are very active in the media, calling for the others involved in the killings to be brought to justice. Mm-hmm. And actually, there is a Facebook group titled remembering kk's corner 20 years later that has about six thousand members so um if you'd like to join to stay up to date in that case and any developments that's there um i think they also talk about other local kind of murders and cases i've seen a lot of posts in that group on like the jennings eight uh-huh so stay tuned yeah so um if you have any additional information that could help bring the other bring the others involved in these murders to justice and bring the victim's family's closure, you can call the Calcasieu Parish Sheriff's Office at 337-491-3600. That's the case of the unsolved KK's Corner murders. Thank you for listening to Homicide Homegirls. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to our Facebook page and leave us a review or rate us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you want to be the first to know When an episode is released, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, Facebook at facebook.com slash Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you would like to suggest an episode, use the form located on our Facebook page. Once a month, we plan to answer fan-submitted questions in a segment we like to call hashtag AskTheHomegirls. So be sure to use the form on our Facebook page to submit your questions. 